I know this is probably the busiest time of the year, but uh, we'll be going over the book of Job. If you want to watch a movie, probably don't feel like reading anything extra right now, but if you're interested in watching a movie that very much relates to the book of Job, uh, there's a great movie called um, God on Trial. And if you haven't seen it, I think this is a PBS um, production. You can watch most of it on YouTube. Uh, it describes uh, these uh, people in a concentration camp who are just about ready to be gassed. And they're all in this room. And basically, they decide to put God on trial. And so the movie is essentially a discussion of how do we deal with a good God, good loving God, and all the suffering. And they put God on trial, and it asks some uh, very stimulating questions, uh, which I think are maybe a good place to start for the book of Job. So today we're going to finish up on Judges. All right, let's pray. Father, once again, we ask that uh, we can come close to you just now as we look at, um, again, such a a violent book. Pray that um, the message that you have for us in this book would come through. Amen. All right, the book of Judges ends with this verse. There was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did whatever they pleased, which is kind of a good summary for this book. Everyone did whatever they pleased. We didn't really answer the question last time. I said, somehow, there is a great light that comes through about God in the book of Judges. And we wonder, how in the world um, is that ever going to break out? That's what we're going to try to answer today. Somewhat peripherally related to this, We had something happen on the ward yesterday that uh, kind of reminded me of this question. Uh, We had this patient who had uh, a stroke and had pseudobulbar palsy. And so basically he was unable to speak, not from a Broca's aphasia, but just because he completely cut off all of the cortical bulbar tract, he can't talk, can't swallow. Uh, He's incredibly incredibly discouraged. Every time we go in to see him, um, you know, just imagine you're talking one minute and the next minute you just can't even get a sound out. So I was um, just day after day thinking, you know, how can I break through with something um, for this uh, man who's uh, you know, incredibly depressed? Anyway, yesterday he was sitting in a, in a chair by the bed, and he has to write everything down you know, to uh, communicate. And the last thing he said was, I'd like the nurse to move me uh, into the bed. And so I thought, well, we'll do something good here. We've got six people on our team. We'll lift him and move him into the bed. So um, his bed was here. or I'm sorry, his chair was here. His bed was here. The neurology resident is standing here. I'm on the other side. We've got two, three medical students and an intern. So, I mean, we should be able to handle this, right? Lifting this patient from his chair to his bed. Well, anyway, somehow as we're trying to move him over, the neurology resident who has his arms wrapped around like this tripped and fell into the patient's bed holding on to the patient. And so, as it turned out, the patient ended up lying completely on top of the neurology resident uh, in the bed. And, you know, it's a basic transfer of a patient. should be a very easy thing. And uh, we we fumbled this up. But uh, what was neat at that moment is the patient began laughing. Uh, He thought this was quite funny. And then uh, all the students and everyone else on the team uh, you know, we began laughing. It's hard to lift something when you're laughing, so it was probably 10 seconds or so with this patient lying on top of the neurology resident. And um, anyway, we were, we were eventually able to get him off. Just then the nurse walked in, and we pretended like uh, nothing had happened. But um, it was kind of neat because we were able to then have a little um, uh, interesting communication uh, with the patient that um, made him laugh. It seemed to break some things down that were helpful. 
Anyway, where does God break through in the book of Judges? Last time we finished talking about Jephthah, and this is how the story of Jephthah ends. Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. The men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. They did this because Ephraim had said, You people from Gilead are nothing but fugitives from Ephraim and Manasseh. The men of Gilead captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River, leading back to Ephraim. Whenever a fugitive from Ephraim said, Let me cross, the men of Gilead would ask, Are you from Ephraim? If he answered no, they would tell him, Say the word Shibboleth. If the fugitive would say Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, I guess they couldn't say the S-H, or whatever it was here in Hebrew, they would grab him and kill him at the shallow crossing of the Jordan River, and at that time, 42,000 men of Ephraim died. Okay, so again, the the pervasive violence. So we're going to talk about uh, two stories today in the end of uh, Judges. Uh, The story of Samson, and uh, then we'll talk about the Levite and the concubine. So the Israelites sinned against the Lord again, and he let the Philistines rule them for 40 years. At that time, there was a man named Manoah from the tribe of Zorah. He was a member of the tribe of Dan. His wife had never been able to have children. The Lord's angel appeared to her and said, You have never been able to have children, but you will soon be pregnant and have a son. Be sure not to drink any wine or beer or eat any forbidden food. After your son is born, you must never cut his hair, because from the day of his birth, he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite. He will begin the work of rescuing Israel from the Philistines. And if we were to go back to Numbers and find out what this meant to be a Nazarite, uh, these people did not cut their hair or shave. They weren't to not only drink wine or uh, anything alcoholic, but not even to eat grapes or raisins or touch a corpse. There were a number of kind of unique things here about the, uh, the Nazarites. Um, if we go into Samuel, uh, Samuel was a Nazarite, never cut his hair. Right, so uh, this was the vow, the sign of dedication to God and for a special mission. And the conversation goes on, and Manoah replied, Tell us your name so that we can honor you when your words come true. And the angel said, Why do you want to know my name? It is a name of wonder. What does that mean? Look this up in the Net Bible. It says, You should not ask me my name because you cannot comprehend it. And remember how we've discussed that in the Bible, the word name, it means much more than when we hear about someone's name. We just associate it with some syllables. Name encompasses the person, uh, perhaps best best described as the character of the individual. So if we look up this uh, for a name of wonder or something that's incomprehensible, uh, it could be wonderful, incomprehensible, and it refers to what is in a category of its own and beyond full human understanding. We've talked about this several times in the Bible study, but I I find it interesting in such a dark time where God is coming to give an individual the strength to do, I mean, what do you do with incredible strength? Um, That in this context, he says, why do you want to know my name? It's a name of wonder. Well, while the flames were going up from the altar, Manoah and his wife saw the Lord's angel go up toward heaven in the flames. Manoah realized then that the man had been the Lord's angel, and he and his wife threw themselves face downward on the ground. They never saw the angel again, and Manoah said to his wife, We are sure to die because we have seen God. And this 
this type of encounter, it's so repetitious. Gideon sees the angel of the Lord, but then he's seen God face to face. Who was it that talked with Moses at the burning bush? The angel of the Lord, but then he's talking to God. So uh, this really was God who came and gave this message. But I want to come back to this a little bit. I think it's so significant here. Why do you want to know my name? It's incomprehensible. It's a name of wonder. I don't think we talked about this, but when the, um, the man wrestled with Jacob in the night, and if we read about this in Hosea, I think, again, we can make a good case that this was God. That's what Jacob said. I've seen God. But Jacob said, please tell me your name. And again, the answer, why do you want to know my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. Okay, why is God responding this way? Why do you want to know my name? Okay, we know there were times, and I'll just go over this quickly because we went through the whole story in detail. Remember, Moses asked, please let me see your glory or the dazzling light of your splendor. And the Lord answered, I'll make all my splendor pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce my sacred name. And then you'll remember what happened. We don't have a description, uh, details of what God looks like. We have a description of God's character. Okay, that's really what it means. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced his holy name, the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion, pity, not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. Okay, so God's name, when we talk about that, um, here we're, we're getting a hint about what God's name is all about. And we, we can't talk about this without carrying it all the way through, that God's people misrepresented his name. And we go all the way to the end, historically, of the Old Testament, the people are in Babylonian captivity. Uh, I know I've read this before, but Ezekiel would say, it's just so well translated here in, in the message uh, paraphrase, wherever they went, they gave me a bad name. People said, these are God's people, but they got kicked off his land. I suffered much pain over my holy reputation, which the people of Israel blackened in every country they entered. Therefore, tell Israel, I'm not doing this for you, Israel. I'm doing it for me to save my character or my holy name, which you've blackened in every country you've gone. I'm going to put my great and holy name on display, the name that has been ruined in so many countries, the name that you blackened wherever you went. Okay, how did God really vindicate his holy name? Okay, it was, of course, in the person of, of Jesus Christ. So this uh, incomprehensible name, beyond human understanding. And the book of John opens up, no one has ever seen God. And I think, again, pulling back to our story here of Samson, I mean, did they see God? I mean, they, they saw an incredible manifestation. A person came down, God came down and, and talked with Manoah. Okay, but they did not know God's character. It was a name, a character of mystery at that time. But notice, but the unique one, who is himself God. And this is such a good uh, translation of this passage, the only begotten son. Uh, the very uh, reliable manuscripts of this passage emphasize that the one who came was God himself. The unique one and only, who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. Isn't that central to his mission, to reveal God to us? And so Jesus' words the night before he died, this is eternal life to know you, 
Okay? We're talking about knowing God's name and his character when we say eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. On earth I have given you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. What was his work? I made your name known to the people you gave me. And so uh, it's true. God is beyond our understanding. Um, but Jesus came to reveal something to us, came to clarify, came to make something known. Okay? What he came to make known was his character, his holy name. And so even when we talk about the Lord's Prayer, what are we to pray for? Notice the first thing Jesus told us to pray for. Our Father in heaven, may your holy name be honored, or hallowed be thy name in the, in the King James. What does that mean? Well, I find it significant here, the, the first model prayer that Jesus would give us, that it would seem his greatest desire is, God, may your name, may your character, may it really be revealed in the world. And it's always dangerous. Um, well, I'm going to skip forward to Revelation, but let me just read one uh, quote here on this that, that I really appreciate, a book called Christ's Object Lesson. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Okay, here's the message. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world. Okay, it's not a message about... Um, I don't know, vegetarianism or health, and not that any of those things are unimportant, but the message, central focus, is the revelation of God's character of love. Okay, that should be our prime, primary mission in the world. And on the book of Revelation, um, and I think it's maybe dangerous for me to so quickly go over something like this, but I think when we, the book of Revelation is such an amazing contrast between two kingdoms. God is portrayed as a slaughtered lamb in the book of Revelation. Satan is a ferocious, devouring beast. And we have these contrasts. Okay, we, we mistakenly, I think, read the book of Revelation trying to find a timeline. Okay, trying to predict this and that. A book of Revelation is value-centered. Okay, we're to understand important things about Jesus. It opens up. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, and in contrast we see the enemy. I think this relates. Here the dragon begins to curse God his name. And now in this context, wouldn't it make sense here that if, if everything kind of relates, if ultimately we are one to trust by understanding what God is like and his character, would it make sense for the enemy to be cursing God's name, his reputation, his character, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven? And the beast forced all people to have a mark placed on their right hands or on their foreheads, and no one could buy or sell without this mark. That is the beast's name or the number that stands for the name. Okay, notice the number that stands for the name. This calls for wisdom. Whoever is intelligent can figure out the meaning of the number of the beast because the number stands for the name of someone, and its number is 666. Okay, and... Uh, I wish we had time, and, and I know I've encouraged all of you several times, Sigvi Tonstad's class on Revelation has, has been so helpful to me. 
Okay, but what I think the book of Revelation is describing here is a, is a counterfeit. Okay, it's, it's something that sort of looks like God, sort of looks like God in his kingdom, but it's a counterfeit. It's a false character. And if we read on about the woman riding on the beast, she has a name written on her forehead. Okay, and I think this is referring to, uh, I mean, just think of the, the people that Jesus came to 2,000 years ago, reading their Bibles, going to church, paying tithe, doing all those good things, and Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. So they were sure they were God's true people. So again, another quote that I think uh, relates to what we're talking about here. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hey, how did he do that? Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God. And we've talked about the story at the tree so often. What happened at the tree? Snake came and he maligned God. You're not free in this garden. You can't eat any fruit in this garden. God has lied to you. He's not trustworthy. Okay, that was the first deception from the beginning. So he sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, as arbitrary, severe, unforgiving. So if God is ever presented as arbitrary, severe, Unforgiving, those would be red flags, uh, as I understand it. That he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. And so we have Jesus entering the stage uh, to vindicate uh, God's character. And I find it, again, fascinating on this subject of the name that the book of Revelation ends with God's people. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. Okay, God's character will be reflected in everything about them. Foreheads, the mind, the intelligent understanding of God and worship of God. Okay, so a little bit of a diversion there, but I find it fascinating that in the book of Judges, here in a dark time where it would seem that God is absent, God would say, yeah, you really can't understand my name. It's incomprehensible during this time. And so we have Samson here doing these incredible things. Jesus revealed God to be a God of humble service. And here we have God inspiring Samson to do these violent things. Suddenly the power of the Lord made him strong. And he went down to Ashkelon where he killed 30 men, stripped them, and gave their fine clothes to the men who had solved the riddle. Remember he was upset that, uh, that his wife told the riddle to the men. So he killed 30 men, took their clothes. After that, he went back home, furious about what had happened. Okay, and just one more little uh, story here where the Philistines came running toward him, shouting at him, and suddenly the power of the Lord made him strong. And he broke the ropes around his arms and hands as if they were burnt thread. And then he found a jawbone of a donkey that had recently died. He reached down, picked it up, and killed a thousand men with it. Can you imagine And so just a, a question here is why would God inspire Sam? I mean, why wasn't Samson blessed as the most humble person who's ever lived? Boy, there was something incredible about Samson, his humility. Uh, why not bless Samson with uh, wisdom, any number of things? Why strength? Why the strength to do those kinds of things? And I'm always reminded here, is it Aretha Franklin? I don't remember, but the uh, uh, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Respect. Respect. 
And when we think about how you evaluated gods in that time. Okay, and again, this is the mindset. Unfortunately, it would appear uh, even of the Israelites, that each nation had a god who ruled in his territory. Okay, so we have Yahweh, God of Israel, just as one example. We have Shamash, who was the god of Moab. Okay, this is polytheism. We have all these uh, individual different gods. Even though, of course, in Deuteronomy, God would say, I am the only God. Okay, the one and only. Did the people of Israel believe that there were other gods? Well, they were continually going out to worship them. And uh, this interesting story here in 2 Kings would seem to suggest that they believed other nations had their gods. Very interesting story about the king of Moab. He was losing a battle to the Israelites. And he took 700 swordsmen with him and tried to force his way through the enemy lines and escape to the king of Syria, but he failed. So he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the god of Moab. Here's what's interesting, though. The Israelites were terrified. Now, why in the world should they be terrified? And so they drew back from the city and returned to their own country. Remember that in this time, the mindset is the greatest honor for your God is to kill your firstborn. And here they witness the king of Moab kill his firstborn, and they run. And why would they run if they believe there's only one true God? Okay, they, they seem to believe that there was a God of Moab, and now he's going to be drawn into the action, and we better flee. Okay, so again, this is the mindset, and uh, so the gods were evaluated on how strong the people were. So when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go, Pharaoh laughed, because obviously the God of the Israelites must be very weak to be a God of slaves. Okay, so to reach people in this time in such a violent book of Judges, I, I would say the only way that God could really speak was to reveal that at least he's powerful. And so we have Samson blessed with all this power. And it was a sad life. As you know, Samson uh, didn't follow God very faithfully. Okay, his... Um, you know the whole story with Delilah, his eyes are put out, he's in captivity, his hair grows back, and he puts his arms around the pillars in the temple, and he prayed, Sovereign Lord, please remember me. Please, God, give me my strength just this one more time. And Samson's dying prayer. And what did Jesus do just the one last time with his disciples? Wash their feet. What did Samson do? His last wish just one more time so that with this one blow I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my two eyes. Okay, that was his dying wish. But it should be encouraging to us that we have a man like Samson. There he is again, all these people and judges in Hebrews 11, men and women of faith. Okay, uh, God looks pretty gracious, I would say, in putting these people, uh, having them listed in the book of Judges. The people don't very often look very good, but I think God looks good. Now, what is called the most um, disturbing story in the Bible, uh, actually in the book of Hosea, it's called the darkest moment, is the story of the Levite and his concubine. And we're just going to read the story. It speaks for itself. It's, it's terrible. Okay, but we want to ask, why is this story in the Bible? Why is it helpful in any way to have stories like this in the Bible? And what does this tell us about God? Okay, so this Levite and his concubine, were on this journey with their servant and two donkeys and with pack saddles. It was late in the day when they came near 
Jebus, if, if I'm saying that correctly. And this is Jerusalem. Remember, David captured this city and then it became Jerusalem. But during this time, it's, it's still controlled uh, by another nation. So the servant said to his master, why don't we stop and spend the night here in this Jebusite city? But his master said, we're not going to stop in a city where the people are not Israelites because that would be dangerous. We'll pass on by and go a little farther and spend the night at Gabeah or Ramah. So they passed by and continued on their way. It was sunset when they came to Gabeah in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Must be a much safer place. They turned off the road to go and spend the night there. They went into town and sat down in the city square, but no one offered to make them home, to take them home for the night. When they were there, an old man came by at the end of a day's work on the farm. He was originally from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was now living in Gabeah. The other people there were from the tribe of Benjamin. The old man noticed the traveler in the city square and asked him, where do you come from? Where are you going? The Levite answered, we have been in Bethlehem and Judah, and now we are on our way home deep in the hill country of Ephraim. No one will put us up for the night, even though we have fodder and straw for the donkeys, as well as bread and wine for my concubine and me and for my servant. We have everything we need. The old man said, you are welcome in my home. I'll take care of you. You don't have to spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed their donkeys. His guests uh, washed their feet and had a meal. And, And this has so many parallels with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were enjoying themselves when all of a sudden some sexual perverts from the town surrounded the house and started beating on the door. They said to the old man, bring out that man that came home with you. We want to have sex with him. But the old man went outside and said to them, no, my friends, please don't do such an evil, immoral thing. This man is my guest. Look, here is his concubine and my own virgin daughter. Again, it's uh, so unthinkable that the, the women here are pushed out Uh, like this, his own daughter. I'll bring them out now, and you can have them. Do whatever you want with them, but don't do such an awful thing to this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the Levite took his concubine and put her outside with them. Now remember, they wanted the man. I'm just imagining how he pushed her out the door. Must have closed it real fast. I mean, this was uh, um, nothing to admire in this man. And they raped her and abused her all night long and didn't stop until morning. At dawn, the woman came and fell down at the door of the old man's house where her husband was. She was still there when daylight came, which would suggest to me she'd been there for a while, Uh, which just made me think, I mean, did he have a good sleep that night? How long was she there before he went out and found her? Her husband got up that morning, and when he opened the door to go on his way, he found his concubine lying in front of the house with her hands reaching for the door. I mean, this is very dramatic. He said, get up, let's go. What a a heartless individual. But there was no answer. So he put her body across the donkey and started on his way home. When he arrived, he went in the house and got a knife. He took his concubine's body, cut it in 12 pieces, and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, we have never heard of such a thing. Nothing like this has ever happened since the Israelites left Egypt. We have to do something about this. What will it be? Okay, and just very briefly, this is what they did. The Israelites gathered 400,000 trained soldiers, and they went out to attack the Benjamites. And at the end of the battle... 
In all, 25,000 Benjamites were killed that day, all of them brave soldiers, but 600 men were able to escape, and uh, they went and they burned down the villages, and uh, then they began to feel sorry. People of Israel felt sorry for their brothers, the Benjamites, and said, Today Israel has lost one of its tribes. What shall we do to provide wives for the men of Benjamin who are left? We have made a solemn promise to the Lord, and we will not give them any of our daughters, because they made a vow they wouldn't give any of their daughters to the Benjamites. And when they asked if there was some group of the tribes of Israel that had not gone, because what they did was they, they told everyone what happened, they called everyone to battle, okay, and they found one group that didn't come and join the battle. Okay, and that was the people of, uh, in Gilead. And at the roll call, no one uh, from Jabesh had responded. So the assembly sent 12,000 of their bravest men with the orders, go and kill everyone in Jabesh, including women and children, kill all the males and also every woman who's not a virgin. And they found 400 young virgins and they brought them to the men that were left over so that the tribe of Benjamin uh, wouldn't be extinguished. Right? It, it's a very disturbing story. And so again, our questions are, how could God allow this to happen? In fact, I like to think if you're an angel in heaven and you're watching all of this, uh, are you a little confused at this point? I mean, what, what is going on? How many more thousands of years is this kind of activity just going to happen? Why doesn't God just wipe them out? What does the story say about God? And why is the story even in the Bible? Is this helpful? I've said so many times, we have to take the Bible as a whole. Okay, we need to put it all together. And what I find so fascinating here is that this story is talked about extensively in the book of Hosea. And I think when we read Hosea uh, for some commentary, God's commentary on this story, uh, it's, it's quite eye-opening. You got your start in sin at Gabeah. That's exactly where this happened with the Levite and the concubine. That ancient, unspeakable, shocking sin. Okay, isn't that a fair assessment? And you've been at it ever since. Um, this, this is a wonderful passage in any translation, but I just like the, the message uh, paraphrase here. Here's a description, God's description of these people. In the, again, he's talking about Gabeah. When Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out my son, called him out of Egypt. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods. He played at religion with toy gods. Okay, but here's the, the key point. Still... I stuck with him. Okay, I think God can look good, even in the book of Judges, when we consider he stuck with those people. It would seem in, in that setting of rebellion uh, that maybe intuitively we would just think he's going to wipe them out. But he didn't. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon, that I lifted him like a baby to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. Now he wants me to go back to Egypt or go over to Assyria, anything but return to me. That's why his cities are unsafe. The murder rate skyrockets and every plan to improve things falls to pieces. My people are hell-bent on leaving me. They pray to God Baal for help, but he doesn't lift a finger to help them. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I turn you loose, Israel? How can I leave you to be ruined like Adma, devastated like luckless Zeboam? Uh, these are two other cities destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't bear to even think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. 
And so I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Because I am God and not a human. I'm the Holy One, and I'm here in your very midst. And so when we look back here, um, clearly we can say, how did God feel about this? When we just read, my insides churn in protest. So if you're feeling that way, that's, that's a good emotion to have with that kind of a story. And again, what did God do? Still, I stuck with him. Okay, that's really the remarkable thing. And also, I find it interesting that, that what were the two tribes left in Jesus' day? Judah and Benjamin. Okay, the other ten tribes were lost forever. Okay, in the Assyrian captivity. Only two left. Who's the most famous Benjamite? But Paul, who was a Benjamite. I find that interesting. So I would say that we can say about the Bible, that the Bible is an inspired textbook of horrible disease and the, at the same time the wonderful healing remedy. Oh, just like you take a pathology textbook, okay, with the worst of the worst pathology that you see, this last lecture, at least the last 20 minutes of it was, was pretty horrible from what I listened to. Not, not that it was delivered poorly, but uh, the, the, the horrible uh, brutality that was there. If you were just to selectively bring out all of the worst things that you've heard about in the first two years of medical school, uh, that would be a pretty depressing book. Okay? Some people look at the Bible that way. They pull out the worst stories, lump them all together, and say, what an awful book. The Bible has to be read in the context of a remedy. And as we talk about uh, the problem of suffering next time, I would just say that the only satisfactory answer to why God allows things like this, the Levite and the concubine, is if we realize that God became a human, uh, God suffered, at the hands of our violence. Uh, God is the ultimate victim in his death on the cross, and unless we incorporate that into stories like this, uh, I think we don't have a satisfactory uh, explanation for suffering. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, certainly there is much to uh, admire just in the fact that it would seem, based on these stories that are recorded in such uh, incredible and uh, discouraging detail, that you had every reason just to wipe those people out. So it's quite remarkable that you stuck with them and that ultimately you came to those people. So we just pray that um, your character, what we see in Jesus, that that would be the most important thing to us. We would bring that message of good news to the world. Amen.